Bring the good old bugle, boys, we'll sing another song. Sing it with the spirit that will start the world along. Sing it as we used to sing it, 50,000 strong, while we were marching through Georgia. Sang the chorus from Atlanta to the sea while we were marching. Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. <clears throat> and this will be the penultimate episode of my American Civil War series. Um, it will cover the event from December to March. So going from 1860 forward to 1865, we're going to spend most of our time in 1865 here uh, in, the, in the last two episodes, uh, except for one or two documents. We'll be quickly getting into, um, into the final actual year of the war. So the central events here are I, the second inaugural address, of course, uh, Lincoln's uh, beginning of a second term. Um, but also, of course, we got the 13th Amendment being um, passed during that lame duck period. Um, what else? Oh, the continued breakdown of the Confederate war effort and then some of their last ditch efforts to try to salvage their, their, uh, their effort at independence. So, um, yeah, it's um, some good stuff here, actually. <coughs> Again, war is not going to be our primary focus, uh, as it did in many other other episodes where we had battles and really huge battles at the center of some of these stories. Here, uh, the fighting is still significant, and there are many people dying uh, every day during this period of the Civil War. But um, gone are the days of the of the intense battle between relatively equal armies. You know, like Chancellorsville or Gettysburg or more battles like that, and this is being replaced with really more of a total war type of uh, type of affair, where civilians are the targets, and it's about mass mobilization and who can bring the most troops to the front. So, um, yeah, let's let's jump into these these sources. Um, the first one we have is fairly long. It's it's uh, a journal written over the course of a week or so in December 1864 by a woman named Mary S. Mallard and she is commenting on on the march to the sea from a Confederate civilian's point of view um, and it's we've seen this before from the perspective of a Union soldier in the in the march to the sea this is um, you know obviously going to have different points of view um, now she is uh, experiencing this looting at a, at a very personal level right um so they were told it sounds like according to her anyways they were being told that the army would just be looting provisions and maybe destroying infrastructure and things like that not targeting individual homes right the homes are still sacred but that's clearly not what happened in practice there seems to be many examples uh, even just this document of union soldiers entering into people's homes, plundering what they could um, find, searching uh, every, as one, as she says at one point, every hole and corner of, of the house, opening up trunks, just digging up for whatever they could find was be useful. Uh, in fact, here's one that's really weird. Uh, she taught, she writes, they flew around the house, tearing open boxes and everything that was closed. They broke open mother's little work table with a anderon, whatever that is, hoping to find money or jewelry. It contained principally little mementos that were valuable only to herself. Failing to find treasure, they took the sweet little locks of golden hair that her mother had cut from the heads of her angel children nearly half a century ago and scattering them on the floor, trampling them under their feet. End quote. So, um, I guess if these documents are any, or this document is any window into the, to some element of the truth of the March to the Sea, we can understand the, the resentment that's built up within lost cause rhetoric about Sherman and the March of the Sea, but this is clearly outside the orders, it seems to me. I, I, you know, on the other hand, did officers put a stop to this? Did, was there much concern about it? This kind of plundering of homes and stealing 
knickknacks and trinkets and watches. There's a whole bunch here about a watch they're looking for. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's, it does seem from this document that there was some uh, kind of nonchalance about letting this kind of stuff happen. You know, this robbing of civilians, entering homes, those kinds of things, demanding valuable things. Now, this woman, she debates with officers. She actually talks to she talks to one group and says, like, I want to see your officers and talk to them. And they're like, we are the officers. We can do what we want. And then she finally does find some officers. And he does reply, quote, it's contrary to the orders for the men to be found in houses. And the penalty was death. And so far as his authority extended with his own men, none of them should enter the house. End quote. Now, is that all it went? Is that as far as it went? You know, if this was true, that the penalty for looting civilians was death, how many people were punished for this? I'm guessing not very many. Um, again, I, I, this might have been policy, just, you know, officially this is our policy, but in re reality, we don't really care what you do to these people. Um, so it does seem that officers are essentially allowing these soldiers to do the looting as well. Um, we see this at the end of her journal here um, where okay mother she's talking about her mother mother said to them why have you entered my house with false keys with demonical leer they said we want none of your keys and tried to put in one of those they brought into the pantry door she told them, your soldiers already broken the key in the lock and it cannot be opened, but everything has already been taken. When they insultingly insisted the door be opened, mother said to them, very well, break it open just as soon as you please. She remonstrated against their coming over the house and told them of the off order of the officers. They replied, none of the officers prevented them from coming in, in and they would be damned if, if they would mind any such order, would be damned if they did not go and take what they pleased. So if this is true, it seems they, the officers really were not really enforcing these rules, um, which, you know, I get, I get, but this, it does look bad, I have to say. Still, that said, my understanding is like the, the number of actual war crimes, you know, against bodies, against people during Sherman's March of the Sea and the, and the Carolina campaign that followed, relatively low. Um... But anyways, yeah, sad story, <clears throat> but whatever. Uh, so, oh, next we have a, a editorial in Harper's Weekly. So this was already in 1875, so we're already moved into January 1875 uh, in this anthology. This uh, is about re retaliation. And so the issue here, we, which we sort of talked about last time, is if we return, if we do a prisoner exchange, like if the Union has like 70,000 Confederate prisoners and the South has like 70,000 Union prisoners, if you swap them, that does not significantly improve the Union Army's chances, but it does put essentially a whole new army on the field for the Confederates <coughs> if those people are, are put back into uniform and in the battlefield, which seems likely. So... There's that problem of you can't do a prisoner exchange. On the other hand, how do you respond to mistreatment? Now, one response to mistreatment would be, okay, let's get those boys home. The only way to do that is a prisoner exchange. But strategically, that's not good sense. So you're stuck with your boys being in POWs till the end of the conflict. All right, but what do you do if someone is mistreated? Now, we saw this done in the last episode too of executions if someone was executed the other side would just execute an equal number of of prisoners of war um, but what do you do about people who are um, um, like starved or mistreated or not given can you know proper food do you then not give like if union POWs are not getting proper food do you not give confederate POWs proper food uh, this is the dilemma Harper's Weekly is commenting on here. They say, if we were at war with cannibals who ate their prisoners whom they took from their enemies, we could not retaliate in kind. If we were fighting Indians who burned their captives at the stake, we could not retaliate in kind. We are at war with men who have a long habit of enslaving other men. 
So part of the problem is like these, they're not equal values, right? So that's the starting point here is that the Confederacy does not have the equal values because it is based on slavery. So they're already used to treating captive people poorly, not feeding them enough, not giving them enough clothing, treating their lives with disrespect. Um, but um, so what's to be done? Well, exchange is to be done. And we actually got the numbers here and it's, he says, or the editorial writer here says, well, we can't really do that because that's going to prolong the war. Um, so the conclusion is here. The question is, at best is very difficult. No government ought to be severely censored either for refusing to reinforce its enemy's army or for declining to destroy prisoners of war. To justify retaliation in the abstract is very easy. To advise it in a specific instant is to assume a very solemn responsibility. So he seems to be saying here, I'm assuming that's a guy, who wrote this. We have to take the moral high ground, even if it means an unfair treatment. So, all right. Now, let's, uh, the next issue we need to talk about here, and there's several documents speaking to this uh, in, in what I read for this episode. And that is the question, do we arm slaves? Speaking here of Confederates, from the northern point of view, there are no slaves right, anymore, or very few, just maybe a few border states. Um, do, does the Confederacy arm enslaved men and women? Lee, of course, was talking for a while by this point that maybe we need to do this. Now, this is very late. There, there's no black Confederates or something like that. There are the handful that were put in arms. I don't think so, saw much combat. It was kind of a last-ditch effort, and no one really went for it. Um, but even at the end here in January 1865, Howell Cobb wrote this letter to James A. Seddon. Um, <clears throat> so Cobb was a Georgian politician who's commanding like the defense troops in Georgia. So he's got a very personal investment in like the final battles of the war in the, in, in the deep south. And so Seddon is the, is the Secretary of War. So these are high-ranking, important people writing this. This isn't just like diary commentaries. <clears throat> and he says, like, you can't listen to Lee on this point. Like, this is ridiculous. Um, he says, instead, we need to have a broader... We basically got to expand the number of whites we, we mobilize. With, and I think they're already scraping the bottom of the barrel here. But he seems to believe the freest, broadest, and most unrestricted system of volunteering is the true policy and cannot too soon resort it to. I, I don't know quite what he means by that. I think he's basically mean let anyone who like is willing to pick up a gun serve. They can take a bullet as well as the next buy. So, so don't filter them out for whatever reason. I don't think they were that picky, but he's saying, yeah, let anyone in to serve. <laughs> Um, but why not arm blacks? Of course, we're going to see Lee's pr exact proposal later on. And it's because Lee even realized you can't ask these people to fight without giving them freedom when they can get freedom without fighting. They just wait or they just run away. They'll get their freedom. The, 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 the U.S. is giving them that, that. So why would they fight for you so he's like yeah we're gonna have to couple this with emancipation and there's more and more talk like that there's gonna be another voice who says maybe we just got to free the slaves entirely if we're gonna have any hope of surviving this war as an independent nation so there are a few voices at the end of the war at the very end at the tail end who say we have to make a choice independence or slavery and and many like how how Cobb says no we, we we live or die with slavery it's it's our reason for existence and others are saying, well, maybe we can still get our independence if we compromise or, or surrender on this issue of slavery. Cobb, though, definitely says, no, no, no. This is a pernicious idea. It's, I mean, he says it right here. Use all the Negroes you can get for all the purposes which you need them, but don't arm them. The day you make soldiers of them is the beginning of the end of the revolution. If slaves will make good soldiers, our whole theory of slavery is wrong. But they won't make soldiers. And quote. Well, that's being proven wrong by the Union Army. So he's just being an idiot there. He's just being a little um, bullheaded. But he's saying, please, please, please don't do this. It's, it's, 
you know, our problem is maybe not enough guns. It's industry. It's not having enough white people willing to take a bullet for, for the cause. Um, the next document is related to this. Our good friend Catherine Edmondson, our North Carolina plantation gal. Um, she is talking about this debate about arming blacks as well. And she kind of ties it to class. I think her comments here are pretty insightful. Um, I'm, I'm kind of bored of her, to be, be honest. I've, I've read too many of her words, I think. But her comments on this, I think, are insightful. And it's something that Cobb and even Lee, for his man, when he talks about uh, emancipating arming slaves, he's not quite looking in this way. And that's it. She kind of brings class into it. And maybe because she is on a plantation, she understands the class dynamics maybe more than some others. I don't know. So she writes this. General Lee advises the conscription and ultimate emancipation of 200,000 slaves to be used as soldiers. One or two rabid partisan papers, democratic, I might almost say agrarian to the core, seize on the proposal, hold it up to the people, to the army in the most attractive light. They promised the white soldier that if the Negro is put into the army, for every Negro soldier, 15 white ones will be allowed to return home. Well, let me stop here. That's preposterous, right? There was a manpower crunch in the Confederate Army. One black soldier allowing 15 to return home. I don't, I don't know where she gets that math from. But maybe someone is promising that. Moving on. The, she writes, They use it as an engine to inflame the passions of one class against another. Tell the poor man that the war is but for his rich neighbor's slaves and his blood is poured out to secure additional riches to the rich, etc., etc. They, one paper to its shame, be it said, the Richmond Inquirer openly advocates a general emancipation as the price for fancied benefits to be obtained by the alliance of England and France. Actually, it offers to sell the birthright of the South, not for a mess of pottage, but only for the hope of obtaining one. End quote. So she's not too happy with this idea either, although she does sort of end saying, like, it's kind of out of my pay grade and that decision will be made. But she's bothered by this idea, too. So there's not necessarily public support, at least not from the plantation class. She also talks about the legal limits and the legal problematic of, our, of emancipating slaves because you'd be seizing property from citizens, people who are, you know, property from the Confederate point of view. And what would be the legal justification for doing that? It must almost have to be voluntary. I don't know what was actually done with the few hundred or so who were who were armed at the end. But what else is she saying? She it's funny too. There's like this belief and of of diarists from the South saying like picking up on every little piece of news. It's almost like Twitter. Pick on some people. You know, there's protests in China. Xi Jinping's gonna fall. I mean, that's what the news these days are. It's like they pick on one little new piece of news and say, oh, the tide's turning. She talks about a naval battle that the Confederates like won or something else. And it's like the, the war is falling apart around you. Like Sherman's a few, like 100 miles from you at this point. And you're just like, oh, the tide's turning. Eventually there's going to be a big battle and everything's going to flip around. Where she does find hope, though, she's not entirely stupid. She does find hope in the Netherlands history. She says, like, look at the Netherlands. They've had to fight for their independence for like 70 years, and there was ups and downs, and they had to make compromises, but eventually they won their independence in the long term. So, anyways. Next document, the petition of the colored citizens of Nashville. So this is in the aftermath of the uh, Battle of Franklin. Uh, and the ending of fighting in Tennessee and this part of the South. And it's really striking how quickly the black citizens of Nashville embraced their freedom and pushed for political rights. It wasn't a delay. It didn't take a long time to cultivate that. I think that's the amazing thing about the Reconstruction narrative is just how immediately demands for land, for civil rights, for voting rights, for the franchise, and these things were made when slavery collapsed. And here's just another example of it. Because there's a lot of thanks in this document, a lot of saying, oh, we're, we're, we're thankful, we're willing to serve, we're willing to do our things for our country, all that kind of stuff. But 
just like the Douglas uh, statement we looked at last time, they quick they flip very quickly to political rights, um, saying like both justice and civil rights are the wages we get for this for our slavery and for our you know service in the war and just as men, just as people. Because, uh, like Douglas is making, this is very much reminiscence, I think, of that Douglas. It was that New York convention or Congress or whatever they had. It's very, it reminds me very much of that in the sense that the focus is on what we've earned, right? What, followed by like this argument based on just fundamental human rights, that even if we didn't earn it, we still, or we still deserve it. But it's almost like, we didn't have to do this. Like this is a natural right of ours, the right to vote, the right of citizenship, all that. But nevertheless, we contributed. We freed ourselves. That gives us even a greater claim to it. It's like making the broadest case possible for the broadest uh, set of rights that they thought they could win. And I think this is a very, very good and document laying out this argument although i'm not going to go into too much detail here because it is very reminiscent of the, the new york statement by by douglas it just comes out very quickly after the battle of franklin that's what struck me about it uh yeah that's the main idea all right next we have the uh this is the downside of the chronological set up in this anthology is now I'm going to go back to this issue of arming slaves because this is Robert E. Lee's letter to Andrew Hunter um, and this is a this was intended to be published I think um, and this was urged by Judith Benjamin who was the Secretary of State at the time for the Confederacy he urged Lee to kind of publish this letter um, the letter to Andrew Hunter is a Virginia state senator, so rather, relatively lower rank, but the idea was that this would be published and be a, like a policy prescription that would be taken seriously by the by the government. And I kind of laid out the main points here of what it is. He, he says, like, um, if we want our independence, if we don't want the complete collapse of the war effort, we're going to have to have more troops, and the only place we can get them is um, slaves. Um, second point being from the Union point of view, they're already freed. And if Union keeps winning battles and claiming land, these people are going to be lost to us anyways. Um, he writes this, like, should the war continue under existing circumstances, the enemy may, in course of time, penetrate our country and get access to a large part of our Negro population. It is his avowed policy to convert the able-bodied man among them into soldiers and to emancipate them. So he kind of ha- he kind of puts a insidious perspective on it, but he says we wouldn't do that, right? Um, whatever may be the effect of our employing Negro troops, it cannot be as mischievous as this. If it ends in subverting slavery, it will be accomplished by ourselves, and we can devise a means of alleviating the evil consequences to both races. So his argument is. If slavery is going to fall, we, it's got to fall on our terms, and we can kind of m- manage it. I don't know what that would mean in this perverse imagination they have. Uh, I don't know, like making sure all the women are protected or something. Whatever perverted concepts they have of what the free blacks are are, are about. I mean, I think Lee's got to understand more than maybe others that they, they've proven they would be good soldiers. He can't be as like, he can't have like fingers in his ear like the other guy, you know, that, oh, they cannot serve. It's clear they can be effective soldiers. He's fighting them every day in, in the battlefield. But he still kind of buys into this racist rhetoric saying like long habits of obedience and subordination coupled with the moral influences with which our country, the white men possesses over the black, furnished an excellent foundation for the discipline that they need for military. So it's a very different argument for why they can serve. In the North, it's their men, they're based on equality, based on, of course, it's proven to a certain degree, you know, Fort Wagner and all that. But Lee's argument is like, a good white soldier is like brave and independent and self-thinking and, and willing to sacrifice and blah, blah, blah. 
a good black soldier is subservient and obedient and you know they have kind of a built-in trained discipline um, but I think what's radical about his proposal here and, and probably why it was ultimately never really taken up very seriously is he says like yeah we're gonna have to give emancipation as the price as the price for this because at least those who serve because why would anyone serve when they could just wait around and get general emancipation through a northern victory obviously it's a delusional proposal it's crazy that anyone would think it would work but you know desperate times all right i don't think i'll have too much more to say about the arming of african americans by the confederacy at least not in this episode we'll see if it comes up in the next one maybe a little bit um all right next we have uh the colored ministers meeting with stanton and sherman so edwin stanton went all the way down to georgia to savannah and with sherman met with these different black ministers and we got a really it's like 20 of them um and we have the listing of them and the the church properties and their background we got biographies of all these guys i'll just give you one here ulysses l houston age 41 years born in gramsville south carolina slave until the union army entered savannah owned by moses henderson savannah and pastor of the third african baptist church congregation numbering 400 church property worth five thousand dollars belongs to congregation in the ministry about eight years so i mean the math here is clear he was ministering to this church prior to the civil war was that an underground illegal church uh i don't know we don't get the details here of, of that but i know blacks of course had their own church that wasn't recognized by the masters he was a slave until the war began slave until the union army entered savannah so that's right that moment that's right then but they have already developed this baptist church with a congregation of 400. that's pretty striking again it's more evidence of just how quickly blacks established their institutions in the aftermath of the civil war um this one's even listen to this one william bentley aged 72 years born in savannah slave until 25 years of age when his master john waters emancipated him by will so he was free for 50 years pastor of andrew chapel's methodist episcopal church only one of that denomination in savannah congregation numbering 360 members church property worth twenty thousand. nothing to sneeze at at those times and is owned by the congregation another independent congregation where the property is owned by the congregation and that's repeated in almost all these um we don't have always the details of the property of them but the ones we do it's always owned by the congregation and then many of these are significant sized congregations two three four hundred people um one has white trustees but pretty much the rest are owned and operated entirely by african-americans and this is just in savannah so there's a already a network of free black churches that have been building up you know and we're ready to go probably because they were already operating to some degree i'm interested more in like how these had property like where that property came from i guess if we imagine like a few plantations near each other the blacks there form a congregation maybe the masters allow this for whatever reason maybe it's underground but they build a place build a church for worship i mean they they have some property it's like it got built up in slavery in some of these cases they were building up their churches in a, in a you know with significant properties yeah that's what it would strike me i'm sorry to dwell on this so much but i i think it's something i didn't know about I always thought this was more of a product of Reconstruction. After emancipation, after the Civil War ended, blacks formed churches. But no, a lot of these churches seem to have been already intact, in and not just the free black churches, which obviously they were around, but um, <clears throat> these were like ready to go. 
Now, the notes of this meeting with Stanton and Sherman is a is in a catechism form. So, um, so it's like Stanton and Sherman asking them questions, and then Garrison Fraser, one of these ministers, is the one answering the questions. So, for instance, one question is: State your understanding uh, of the acts of Congress and President Lincoln's proclamation touching on the condition of colored persons in the rebel states. And they answer, as far as I understand President Lincoln's proclamation of the rebellious states, it is that if they would lay down their arms and submit to the laws, all should be well, but if they did not, all the slaves would be free. So they got it right and they understood it. Um, but really what this conversation comes down to is the requirement for labor. <clears throat> labor and independence really means land, right, in the South. The way we can best take care of ourselves is to have land, to till it, to turn it, that is by the labor of our of the women and children and old men, and we can soon obtain ourselves and have something to spare. And to assist the government, the young men should enlist in the service of the government to serve in such a manner as they may want, etc. So they go on and on about the need to um, for land. And then the question comes like, what about the Confederacy Army Blacks, and they say, well, it's not going to go anywhere. It's kind of a stupid idea. Um, and then they say, what do you think about Sherman? And they say, like, he's sent by God, actually. So this is a super, super fascinating, like, document. I wish we actually had the real transcript of this and not this reduced sort of uh, catechism approach. I'm, it sounds like what happened was Sherman and Stanton prepared a set of questions. They prepared their responses and then this one guy was like the spokesperson and then they just rattled out the questions but anyway the important point here is this influenced sherman because sherman not long after this issues his special field order number 15 the one that created uh the charleston islands along the coast and said there land will be redistributed from the planters to the slaves former slaves i should say uh, the 40 acres and the mule idea comes from this. Of course, that's the big tragedy of Reconstruction is that this wasn't done in a more um, broad way. So not much to say about it. It's just the order itself. But it's, um, yeah, it's land reform. It is the model for land reform that America did not take. It was struck down by the president after the new president, after Lincoln, was assassinated. But notice Lincoln didn't undo this. There, there's that hint. I still like there. Like some historians have this idea, Lincoln would have been a, a softy on Reconstruction. And it, you know, so I've been actually rethinking this ten percent plan a little bit because the the ironclad oath idea would have dragged on the Reconstruction process, right? But the ten percent oath the would have created a government really quickly. But it also probably would have been a government dominated by those people who signed to take an oath very quickly, right away, right? Those first 10% would have been the people in political power. And they would have been the scallywag type. So they would have been African-Americans. They would have been people more sympathetic to the Union and maybe been more willing to implement Reconstruction policies. As I do know, before he said we have to do the 13th Amendment, he thought state by state slavery could be struck down. It could be a state law issue. It could be something the states' rights could take up. But, um, he changed his mind on that. But I wonder if the 10% plan, maybe, maybe, maybe I want to hope this too much, was a way to keep get the radicals in power in those state governments like right away so they can start to implement some more radical reconstruction policies, like the land reform. All right, next we do have the 13th Amendment. Nothing much to say about it. Uh, you know the story of its passage, I think. Passed during the lame duck period. Um, and one of Lincoln's greatest achievements, political achievements. It ends slavery. I guess there, we, there's probably a lot to say about this, actually. There's there a whole book, like the new Jim Crow and 13, something, is it a book or a documentary called 13? about how that provision on <clears throat> except as punishment for a crime has opened the door 
to a history of all sorts of abuses. But nevertheless, this is an achievement. <coughs> uh, and then we got a few documents here really celebrating the 13th Amendment. Uh, George Julian's journal. He was a congressman, a radical Republican congressman from Indiana. And he says, like, this will be as an important a day as like the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Um, and he mentions the the admission of Dr. Rock, uh, this black lawyer, to allow him to practice before the Supreme Court. Um, and this was approved without dispute. So the first lawyer who had the right to, to, to argue cases from the Supreme Court. I don't know the details on that. I think is that part of like with the bar. Not just anyone can go to the Supreme Court. You have to have like a certain credentials. And he was given that. So pretty much right after the 13th Amendment, you have like one of the first victories in the Civil Rights Movement, actually. What's next here? Oh, uh, the Keene Diary, February 5th, 1865, which is uh, a counting of the peace talks between Lincoln and... Uh, what's that fuckface's name? Um... Stevens, too many S's, right? Like, like Stanton and um, Stanton and what? Stewart, Stewart and and Stevens, but another yeah, the other like the other Stevens too, right? Thaddeus Stevens, not to be confused with this fuckface, Alexander Stevens of the. The cornerstone speech. He was the vice president of the Confederacy. This is what's. This is a fun little document. It's the back and forth on the on the peace negotiation. Um, the starting point is this is actually in that movie too. If you saw that Steel Spielberg movie on Lincoln, a little snippet of it. Um, but first, yeah, slavery's got to end, and he kind of. Wiggle, Stevens is trying to wiggle on this a little bit and Lincoln's like, well, it's already illegal. The 13th Amendment passed. States just need to ratify it. And yeah, you might have someone try to hold on to their slaves, but they're going to be sued and it's not going to last. Um, then Mr. Stevens kind of babbles on about like war and countries who were had civil wars getting back together and, and nations who had, you know, had quarrels working together on mutual interests and all this. And, and Lincoln just doesn't have the patience for this. He says, Seward is the historian. <clears throat> you talk to him about that. I'm not a historian. I'm a politician. I'm a lawyer. So just, um, yeah, I'm not interested. Uh, then the question comes up of, of penal legislation. And again, Lincoln doesn't budge. He just says, the laws are the laws. And if you broke any fucking laws, sorry, dude, you know, can't help you. Um, what else? Yeah, the something here about about black women and children who might be vulnerable. Maybe they still need to be in some kind of dependent relationship. I think, um, and and Lincoln just dodged that too. He, he's not biting anywhere here in this conversation. To his credit. Um, and basically, the last thing they brought up was, like, would Virginia be restored? And, and Lincoln's kind of like, nobody. <laughs> so there's really no grounds here for any progress on the peace talks. It's fun, though. Fun. I enjoy that document, especially every time history came up, Lincoln just sort of zoned out, kind of like my students in history class. Zone out and say, you know, yeah, talk to someone else. They're into history. Uh, next, we have John H. Stringfellow writing to Jefferson Davis. This is a plea to free the slaves uh, from the South. So this is the most straightforward account. I guess we heard one before by a guy who wasn't a born and bred Southerner. Wasn't he like an Irish or something who moved to the South? Maybe we saw that like a thousand pages ago or something, but... Stringfellow here is making the argument to free the slaves. Um, 
well, the idea here is to, to survive as this country, we're going to have to end slavery. We cannot accept northern terms for a peace. And emancipation is basically the only way to save the South. And they're still holding hope in this recognition. Now, if they weren't getting recognition when they were winning, winning victories, at least winning victories, winning, I'm not sure if they ever were winning, but winning actual victories. If they couldn't get recognition then, why would they get recognition at the end here just because they ended slavery? It seems unlikely that recognition could ever have happened given the political alignments of the time. Um, basically, he says, we cannot consent to reconstruction even if they repeal all their laws and withdraw all their proclamations in regard to our lands and our Negroes because they have now or at any session of their Congress can make any necessary number of states to alter the Constitution. So he's saying, like, if we surrender and we re-enter the Union, they would be able to pass whatever constitutional amendment they wanted. This was, of course, part of the issue with secession in the first place is that the South was being outnumbered. The slave states were being outnumbered and the northern states would just be able to, you know, pass anything they want. And it's worse now. They, they're getting closer to two thirds, right? Because they had new western states. Um, West Virginia was added. Kansas was added. So, yeah, it's like you, even if they say you can keep slaves, it's nothing's going to stop like one day after the war of something like 30. And besides, the 13th Amendment's already been passed. So he's saying, like, just free the slaves and maybe we can, like, uh, maybe the British will come in and save the day. Delusional, but, but whatever. Uh, next document is Henry Garnett's moral discourse. This was the speech he gave in to Congress in February 1865, and I have to say I don't really dig it. Um, it's first of all, it's very long. It's all religious. Now it does cover some common ground we've already covered, of course, with the history of slavery, the slavery as the cause of the Civil War, the cost of slavery. In fact, I think the most interesting thing here is how much it seems to parallel the second inaugural address in some of its themes. Um, I didn't find, when I re looked at the second inaugural on like Wikipedia, that the, this, any, this was not one of the influences, but thematically very similar. It's basically saying like all of our sorrows as a country is rooted in our acceptance of slavery in the first place. But... Well, by and large, what I what's boring about this document is just it's full of this religious rhetoric. It's over the top religious rhetoric and everything is framed in Christian terms, God terms. And not surprising, of course, but it's not a political, systematic political argument. It's a sermon. It actually is a sermon, I think. Um, it, it even ends with like a like a religious poem about Moses and Aaron and all that kind of stuff few good things in here and of, of course like Garnett's pretty famous he's, he's you know major abolitionist um, just not a big fan of this speech I think it's just the over-the-top religious rhetoric all the time like even the arguments for equality are all based on like a Christian point of view but yeah, I guess it's interesting I do get a sense though that this this passage in here about about our sorrows as a nation are because we accepted slavery in the you know back in the day and didn't fix it which is of course partially the theme of the second inaugural so that's like in the air at the time I, I, I'm not sure I'm not saying Lincoln plagiarized this idea obviously the, the way it's talked about is very different Lincoln for his matter that's a very religiously informed speech too but it's pithy it's five minutes long not like this thing like an hour. What else? Oh, he does also say the end of slavery is kind of the the train of history coming. All right. Um, let's shift to a a, conf uh, a Confederate point of view about the front lines. We haven't seen much of that. So this guy, Luther Rice Mills, writing to his brother, I think it is. Yeah, his brother, John Mills. 
about life in the trenches, literally, um, in the Petersburg Richmond campaign. And he's he's sticking with it. He's sticking with the war. He's gonna fight it to the end. He's not gonna desert. But he's saying everyone else, not so much. He thinks it's pretty dishonorable. He doesn't think much of it. But he also is like, there's no one stopping it. It's like. You're supposed to like shoot the deserters, but the guards are just kind of like shooting in the air, pretending shooting at them. They're not really caring that much. Um, he writes, it is useless to conceal the truth any longer. Many of our people at home have become so demoralized that they write to their husbands, sons, and brothers that desertion now is not dishonorable. It would be impossible to keep the army from straggling to a ruinous extent if we evacuate. I have just received an order from Wise to carry out a picket tonight a rifle and 10 rounds of cartridges to shoot men when they desert. The men seem to think desertion is no crime and hence never shoot a deserter when he goes over. They always shoot but never hit. I'm glad to say that we have never, we have had not but four desertions from a regiment to the enemy. So they're deserting straight to the Union side in some cases. Um, yeah, this is a total collapse of military discipline and, and the war effort. It's, it's over at this point. clear from that document. Um, next, the second inaugural, which I talked about in the Lincoln series. It's wonderful. It's on par with the Gettysburg Address. And yeah, it, it's got that same kind of religious baggage that I think the other speech I just complained about had, but this is so short, it gets to the point. Um, and it's, it's more about the suffering of the nation. It centers on that. It's not me trying to make a established arguments just I mean the, 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 it just says there's not much to say at this point we're all suffering we all have experienced loss and you know we, I was trying to save the union that's why I gave a five hour speech last time but now there's no need to because we just need to finish the war and it might go on that's for God to say we never knew this would be this way. We, no one thought the war would be like this, this long, this bloody, this brutal, this destructive. Um, we both kind of prayed to God that we would win both sides. Neither side could be true. Both sides are kind of wrong about that because no one really got the victory that they wanted in the way they wanted. None, no one's prayers were answered. But this is just the payment. This is just the wages we're paying for our sins of slavery. Right, that's the line. Yet, if God wills it that continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsmen, 250 years of unrequited toil, shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid with another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said the judgment of the lords are true and righteous altogether. That's the heart of this. Now, there is that paragraph at the end with this malice towards none, charity for all which some take to mean, oh, he was going to be a softy on Reconstruction. I still don't buy that. That malice towards none, charity for all, is about black people, I think. You know, it's about like their right to have a place in this country beyond just being um, labor, like a labor force for or an agrarian economy. Um, next, we have Frederick Douglass talking about his experience of witnessing the second inaugural, seeing it as a, his feelings at the speech, I guess, in general. He, he feels reborn by it. He feels elevated. I, for some time, he writes, looked upon myself as a man, but now in this multitude of the elite of the land, I felt myself a man among men. I regret to be obliged to say, however, that this comfortable assurance was not of long duration. For on reaching the door, two policemen stationed there took me rudely by the arm and ordered me to stand back. Quote. So he is uplifted momentarily to like a divine level. But this is so good. This is this is Douglas. Douglas is always doing this kind of thing when he writes. This is, he really makes you think about the day-to-day -day horrors of slavery and the offenses and just how disgusting it is in the day-to-day -day lived reality of people. Right? If you read his like to what is you know, or is it just like his first narrative is so good on this. Um, I actually haven't read the life and ties of Frederick Douglass, which I'm very embarrassed. That's what this is from. But um, good. I think this this might be the last time we hear from Douglass in this series. I think so. 
Anything else here? Oh, uh, George Templeton Strong celebrating Union victory. Praising the desertions. Talks about drafting blacks and how that's not going to go anywhere. Strong just seems so on the pulse of things. Even though he's hyperbolic sometimes, he, he did seem to get what's going on around him. Um, yeah, just one last thing, because it also speaks to this uh, issue of Reconstruction, is um, Charles Sumner to John Bright, another S name, by the way, Charles Sumner. He was a radical Republican uh, from Massachusetts. And this letter is kind of laying out a conflict with the president on the issue of a Louisiana senator being allowed to sit in Congress or something. I think, I mean, this was kind of the fault line between Lincoln and Congress and definitely between um, Johnson and, and Congress is how quickly do you do this reconstruction? Congress wanted the South to be out of the Union long enough to sort of pass certain laws, I think, and to make sure those Southern states reform themselves, right? And Lincoln was more relaxed about that, thinking that those kind of conversations would come later. But the fight is coming here because he's saying, well, I'm not going to let that person, we're going to block that person from serving in Congress, even though Louisiana sort of been, re re been, re been brought back into the, into the Union. So I guess that's setting the groundwork for that. We're not going to get much of it because this isn't an anthology about Reconstruction. It's just about the Civil War. So um, next episode will be the last episode in this series. We'll deal with the Lincoln assassination, Robert E. Lee's surrender. Um, obviously, some Reconstruction stuff will come up here, too. Uh, we'll see how people feel about surrender. Maybe we'll, we'll, we'll meet some of our friends for the last time. Yeah. A lot of Lee and Davis. Look at that. Oh, Ellen Renshaw House is back. She was the one who was kicked out of like uh, Knoxville, right, for being a pro Confederate lady. She relocated somewhere. Um, anyways, I'm looking forward to that because I didn't know we get if we'd get the end of that story. So, anyways, that's it for now. Um, if you enjoyed this, you might want to go back and find my series on Lincoln, where I talk a lot more about Lincoln's writings. I look at uh, two volumes of his writings. It was a couple years ago I did that, maybe three years ago. Um, but one more episode before we jump into into uh, Adventures of Tom Sawyer. So, um, as always, thanks for listening, and I will see you next time. Freedom and her train, 60 miles in latitude, 300 to the main. Treason fled before us, for resistance was in vain, while we were marching through joy.